Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast for March 2022. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards and I'm delighted to welcome um, Ellen Weber, our Editor-in-Chief, and I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Ellen Weber. I am the Editor-in-Chief of the Emergency Medicine Journal and I'm delighted to be with Rick and Sarah here today. So Ellen, thanks very much for joining us. You've got two absolutely cracking papers for us as editors and readers choice respectively today. They've attracted loads of attention on social media. They're to do with the four hour target in the emergency department and uh, an association with increased mortality. Uh, so you've agreed to come and join us today to take us through particularly those two stellar papers. Yes, and thanks for inviting me to do that. I just want to start by talking about how I picked the editor's choice, and it is my choice, very subjective. And while all our articles and every issue are great, the ones I tend to choose as the editor's choice normally are things like randomized trials or particularly well-done large multi-center studies that are likely to affect practice. And sometimes I pick articles that I thought and we thought as editors were very interesting, but likely to be overlooked because they don't sound particularly sexy. This month, though, we have a very different kind of uh, editor's choice, and I'm very excited about it because it is written by a lay person, and it's also a commentary. The first time that EMJ have run a commentary as an editor's choice, and it's also a very well-written commentary, uh, very uh, pithy and actually a rather withering critique of both recent policies and long entrenched beliefs in our hospitals that have been affecting the patients remaining too long in our emergency departments. So this commentary is linked to the reader's choice, which is a paper by Simon Jones and colleagues, including, of course, our dear Cliff Mann, who passed away last year. Um, And it shows that one in 82 patients who stays in the ED beyond five hours will die simply due to that delay alone. So that's quite uh, an important number. We actually haven't had a number needed to harm regarding boarding uh, our patients ever. Now, as an editor, I'm not supposed to be biased about the outcomes of papers, but I have to say as an emergency physician and a former medical editor who's faced this issue for years at my own department and also a researcher in crowding, it's really important to have straightforward evidence like this. And some people might go, well, one in 82, that doesn't sound like a lot, but I made a calculation this morning, and it's actually a rough case fatality rate of 1.2%, which looking at the data online right today from Johns Hopkins is very similar to the case fatality rate from COVID in the US and slightly higher than the case fatality rate from COVID in the UK. So it's a very important number. So Ellen, this is a fascinating paper. We knew that there was an association between ED crowding and patient mortality, but here we've got some clear evidence that there's an association between waiting in the ED for more than four hours once you've been told that you need admission and increased mortality. So that's a really important finding. Sarah, what did you make of the paper? I think it just highlights the importance of having flow through a department, and I think it's actually quite shocking and harrowing to think that actually by waiting in our departments that people are dying because of it and you know 
I, I work in a very big department and, you know, I think, you know, that means that probably every 24 hours, probably 10 of my patients may be at high risk of dying. Yeah, I wanted to point out something because you're absolutely right, Sarah. And this is not, by the way, um, an issue just that occurs in the UK. I'm in the US and we see it. And years ago, we did a paper on international crowding and emergency departments everywhere are facing this. And what I particularly want to say about our editor's choice or commentary is how well Derek Prentice, who's the author of that, wrote about the causes of this and basically pointing out that in the UK, you've had a four-hour target, and that's been sort of decimated over time, and that's been one cause of it. And secondly, there are also the other cuts and failure to uh, really adequately staff the NHS. But also, the other thing that we face also in in our uh, emergency department is hospital administrators and other specialists whose patients we're taking care of not seeing this as a hospital-wide problem. And that's really well summed up in this very short, very pithy, and very blistering commentary. So I completely agree with you about Derek Prentice's commentary. He really articulates the reasons why we need to address exit block very, very clearly and it gives a nice critique of that fantastic paper uh, demonstrating the clear association between prolonged length of stay in the ED and mortality. Just to play devil's advocate with regard to the original paper, one of the reasons why patients who we would like to admit to the hospital stay longer in the ED for, for more than four hours is because they have a greater acuity, they might be sicker, they might require high dependency beds, and it may take longer for scarce high-dependency beds to become available. The authors weren't able to adjust for acuity. Do you think that should affect our conclusions? Do you think that um, it might affect the way we interpret whether this is uh, an association or a, a direct cause between prolonged length of stay and increased mortality? It's a really good question, Rick. And I guess what I would say in my experience as a physician is that the people who stay longest in the department are actually less acute. You, ha you have a, a, you know, a STEMI, you're out of my department in a half an hour. You've had a stroke, the neurologist is there, or we're, we're giving TPA, and you're out of the department in an hour. The occasionally there are people who are quite ill and need multiple consults or tests. But my experience, it's not the very sickest patients that are staying more than four or five hours. It's the ones where we're not quite sure what to do with them and don't immediately need a high acuity bed. Or it's the ones who, for example, are going to tele telemetry monitoring, but are stable. And those are the people that I think get lost in our emergency departments. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I hadn't actually necessarily thought of that. I mean, I'd still like to see the data uh, on acuity. Maybe in future that sort of database will be available so we can see more adjustments for the acuity and see if it is a factor. But certainly for now, uh, we've seen convincing data about this association. We all know from other literature that there's an association between mortality and crowding. So I think it gives us uh, a really important impetus to address exit block Moving on from from the uh, the highlights of the the, the the editors and readers' choice of the, from the from the issue, we also have some excellent other papers along the same theme. So we've got one which looks at the association between uh, patient outcomes 
and whether they were on an outlying ward. Sarah, you took a look at this paper. Yes, again, sort of not surprising really with what I'm going to talk about. So the paper is um, Older Medical Outliers on Surgical Wards Impact on Six-Month Outcomes by um, Claire Patry et al. And this paper essentially looked at those medical patients who were being outlied straight to surgical wards due to lack of capacity. And essentially, they took 100 consecutive medical outliers from the ED, and then they matched and case controlled them against 200 controls. And these were patients who were 75 years and older. And essentially, you know, similar themes have come up again, which is that those that are directly outlied to medical wards from the emergency department to surgical wards in this case, uh, 50% will have a lower likelihood of living at home at six months post an ED admission. And, you know, that's in contrary to, you know, what people often will want, which is, you know, most older people would want to be at home. And, you know, what they've also discovered with this this case set as well was that actually a lot of these patients were being discharged to nursing homes, rehabilitation centres and, and were never getting back to their home. And I think, you know, we're a society that wants the best for our patients. And if, if you know, we want to encourage them to be in their homes because that's important to them. But actually, if, you know, these outliers are going to these medical wards straight from the ED, you know, we need to be thinking about if they're, you know, if half of them are never going back to their home. That That is a huge, you know, unsatisfying feeling, not only as a clinician, but if I was the other way around as a, as a you know, a family of this person. I mean, what do you think about this, Alan? What was your feeling about this? Yes, you know, it ties in very well with the, the other paper with regard to, you know, the target, because I think one of the concerns about the target has been this kind of sequestering away people on inappropriate wards to get them out of the emergency department. So we don't want that to happen. And that's why that if we're going to keep the target or any targets, we have to make sure that this is uh, actually done in a way that is patient-centered. And I know that's a common word to say, but basically we can't just be um, moving people around to get them out of the emergency department. We actually have to fix the systems um, so that they go to the appropriate wards. And I agree. I mean, I think we often think about actually, are we doing more harm than good than it, it, when we admit an older person to the, to the hospital? And, and can we find another way to take care of them? But it also so much depends on how capable uh, our outpatient systems are and families are to manage patients at home or ill. I think we put a lot of burden on families if we send people home too soon. So it's very important for us to see what is the impact of our admission decisions and, and also the impact of any kind of target that's going to take people out of um, the emergency department and put them in a ward where they shouldn't be. So I'm going to play devil's advocate on this one and then come back to you, Sarah, for a final word on it. This study has face validity. You know, it, it makes sense that patients on outlying wards might have worse outcomes than patients who go to a ward where the staff are trained to look after them for, for their needs, for their particular needs. However, when you do a study like this, the comparison between the, uh, the outlying patients and the controls is really important. Now, it may be that there are systematic differences between people who are sent to outlying wards and people who are sent to uh, more specialised wards. 
Now, for example, it may be that more of the social admissions go to outlying wards. They need less intense treatment. It may be, for example, that patients who have come from nursing homes and maybe need uh, admissions for social purposes uh, are more likely to go to outlying wards. And the outcome here from this study was to have a look at six months whether the patients were living at home or living in nursing homes or you know what, what level of care they required. They found that the outliers more often needed higher levels of care. However, they don't tell us the difference between the two groups at baseline. Do you think that important confounder might uh, influence the way we interpret these findings? I mean, that's a, that's a valid point, Rick. It, it's interesting because actually the data within the paper they, they give some baseline statistics but you are right and you know having been the other side of it where perhaps I'm helping the bed managers in the department you know look at which patients I could potentially outlie from the emergency department the so the patients with social needs may be the ones that we pick because we inherently know that they're going to take a bit longer can we take the face validity without not knowing the true background characteristics. I think whilst this study is unique and um, there's not there isn't much similar to this, I think it it's still I think we can trust with what they're saying, partly because lots of other papers on similar topics are saying the same things. And they say themselves, well actually we need a bigger study, we need to look at this with, with greater depth. So, you know, I think the bottom line is we know that, you know, getting patients to the wrong areas of the hospital, taking a long time is causing harm. So I think for this paper, I think, yes, I, I would be confident with this paper that the overall message is correct. Okay, great. So we've got two really important messages even so far. One, the four-hour target is associated with adverse outcomes for our patients. And two, going to outlying wards uh, is a problem too. So it, they both speak to hospital capacity uh, as a whole. And that re also relates to our third paper. So our third paper is a systematic review. And this is by um, Anjek Brink and colleagues from the Netherlands, and they ran a systematic review of prediction models that may be used to predict which patients attending the ED require inpatient admission. So this could be helpful for us because we talked about the harms of exit block. The earlier we know whether someone is likely to need hospital admission, the earlier we can put them in the queue for an inpatient bed. If we could get a prediction model to do that when patients first arrive, and if the prediction model could work better than humans, then we could go some way to addressing exit block. So the authors ran a systematic review to see what was out there. They found 11 studies and they evaluated 16 different prediction models. They had a look at how good those prediction models were. Now, I think last month we covered a study on prediction model as well. And we talked about how you measure performance of a prediction model. We need to look at discrimination and calibration. Discrimination is something that we're all generally familiar with because that tells us about diagnostic accuracy. Calibration tells us if this model tells us there's a 10% chance of admission, how accurate is that? If it tells us a 70% chance of admission, how accurate is that? What they found is that the area under the curves of the models ranged from fairly poor, 0.63, to not bad at all, 0.878. And in general, the models were well calibrated. The models that were derived for older people tended to perform less well than the models derived for the general population. 
The only thing I'd say about this is we've got lots of areas under the curb. Some of them look really impressive. However, I, w- I sometimes think the area under the curve is quite a blunt model for assessing how good a, a prediction model is on the whole. It doesn't tell us tangibly how many people will we admit uh, correctly, how many false positive admissions would we get, how many people will it not identify. The, the, those things need to be measured in different ways, sensitivity, specificity, for example. But it does tell us that there are some pretty promising prediction models out there that could potentially be used in this way. I'm interested in uh, your thoughts, Ellen and Sarah. Ellen, what did you think about the paper? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, is that all of these, you know, it was true of a lot of prediction rules, is that they're only giving you probabilities of what's going to happen to the person. And, and, um, you know, it depends on how much weight you put on that. In general, I think, you know, this paper is important because there is a lot of work in this area. But as you say, it isn't necessarily all that helpful. The, the other point about it is, honestly, no one has implemented any of these systems in any scale to show that they help. Because it's a really a theoretical idea that if we could identify you know, people with an 80% chance or 90% chance of being admitted, that somehow the rest of our hospital systems would yield to that decision. I know that in my own department that, frankly, they don't wouldn't even take our decision that the MINIG team actually had to agree that the person had to be admitted before they would uh, assign a bed to that person. So I'm just not sure with any of these prediction rules that people, you know, frankly, if they're not 100% sensitive and specific, that uh, a hospital administration team would agree to following this you know, at the time of triage, because I think they'll be concerned about all of the people where you change your mind. That's a really interesting perspective, isn't it? You know, you can imagine having a difficult conversation with an inpatient team and saying, well, the computer says they need to come to you. Not quite sure how that one would go down. Sarah, what did you make of it? I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I read the paper and I was like, hmm, this this could be really useful. But actually, I think inherently, and it'd be interesting to hear what Ellen and, and you think, Rick, as you do more and more emergency medicine and you work in emergency medicine long enough, my gestalt for the patients that are likely to come in, you know, is is pretty high. You know, I have a pretty good idea within the first few minutes of talking to a patient who is likely to come in and who isn't. And I guess, you know, for me as, as a, you know, a, a clinician like like both of you, you know, I'd be like, well, what's this really going to help? You know, yes, it could help, you know, predict the predicted bed capacity of the, the day and all of that. But we already know this data. And it's just thinking about, you know, actually, how is this going to impact me? I don't know what you both think. I don't know, Ellen? Yeah, that's what I say. I think the the issue, it really is that they are meant to be at the time of triage. And the question is, will somebody accept that? We all have a gestalt. We see a patient we know in minutes, but that could be a half an hour or an hour, depending on your wait time, or two hours after you have the patients arrived in the department. So the idea of this is to get a jump on the physician assessment. And again, I'm just not sure that there has been any evidence that in reality this actually works, either that you know, in, in, a, in a prospective study that people actually, you know, this follows very well, or that anyone um, in administration would accept it. 
So I agree. I think the missing piece of the jigsaw is to compare the performance of the prediction models to our own decisions, as you say, Sarah. If they are better than our own Gestalt, then that's fantastic. They would have a use. But if they're not as good as the Gestalt of the clinician, then they may have limited use. Can I just add one other thing? We had a paper quite a while ago that really I loved it because basically they they asked uh, basically students who were in the working in the department as phlebotomists to decide on looking at somebody whether or and talking to them briefly whether they might be admitted and they were actually as good as nurses nurse triage in predicting admission. And so I think it's important, as you said, that we have to realize that all of these models may not be any better than a nurse at triage saying what needs to be done. Absolutely. Really important. So let's move on to the penultimate paper that we've picked out for this month. And this one is on lung ultrasound. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, I have a number of colleagues who are very enthusiastic and highly skilled at lung ultrasound. They've been very interested in using that technique to diagnose COVID-19 pneumonia. And Sarah, you've taken a look at a paper from Italy, which looked at the diagnostic accuracy of lung ultrasound for COVID-19 pneumonia. Yeah, so this is lung ultrasound in ruling out COVID-19 pneumonia in the ED, a multi-centre prospective sensitivity study. And this was by Carmen Cristiniano di Gioia, and I apologise if I've got that surname wrong, but um, essentially what, what they did right back at the beginning, which um, you know is back in sort of March, April 2020, right back at the beginning of COVID, which seems a lifetime ago now, two years down the line, they um, took a prospective observational study across three emergency departments in Italy and took a sample of 235 patients who they suspected had COVID and wanted to look at the utility really of ultrasound in ruling out COVID-19 pneumonia. So for those um, who want to know a little bit more about, about the ultrasound, essentially they did four views on the front of the lungs. They did both sides of the axilla in two places, and then they did four views on the back. And essentially what they were using, because obviously there was no guidance at the time, and, and it was thinking about, you know, presence of that local or diffuse interstitial syndrome, so sort of coalescent B lines, um, irregular, irregular thick pleural lines and subpleural consolidations. And the bottom line of this paper really is, was that they had a reasonable sensitivity of sort of around 85% and a specificity of 91% of patients who are, uh, who had COVID of, of, you know, ruling that out and ruling that in. And I think what the key takeaway from this paper is, is that ultimately in a population where there is high COVID prevalence, lung ultrasound has a high sensitivity enough to rule out COVID-19 pneumonia in patients with suggestive symptoms. Now, obviously, we're two years down the line now uh, and, you know, sort of moving into a different phase of the pandemic. And, and I'm just wondering what people's thoughts are about the utility of ultrasound in the context of COVID in the world that we're currently living in versus when this first started. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, as happens with publishing, a number of papers come in at the time and COVID moved so fast that, you know, we, we got this paper, we were already moving towards, you know, we already had better tests and, and so forth. 
I think that though this does have still some validity in terms of potentially risk stratification as opposed to diagnosis, which is that you, if, you know, we know now, particularly with Omicron, there wasn't as much lung involvement, but if you wanted to uh, determine whether or not someone needed to come in the hospital, you know, you could look at, of course, O2 sats, but you could also use ultrasound, which we think is somewhat more sensitive than the, the average chest x-ray, plain chest x-ray, but not as costly or difficult as a CT to make that determination whether there is some pneumonia. Because I think, uh, in the, you know, for most of us, pneumonia, we diagnose normally with just a plain uh, chest x-ray. But in, in COVID, I don't think we feel comfortable doing that. So this does still suggest potentially a role for ultrasound in the uh, risk stratification rules, as well as potentially in people who have very early in their disease or very late in their disease where the tests may not be positive. That's really interesting. I have to say, I'm going to play the role of the skeptic again here. I wasn't convinced that it was going to add value to my clinical assessment. You have to do the scan in 12 different areas. They didn't talk about how long it might take to do the scans. And of course, you know, the specificity is only 91%, not quite as high as you might find, for example, from a point of care test trying to detect the virus. Of course, that's just detecting the virus, not detecting the pneumonia. But I just wasn't convinced that we've got enough to say that we're going to uh, change patient outcomes by doing an ultrasound scan. And Rick, I, w- I will agree with you on that. I've been honestly, although I do think this has some role, we haven't seen really any papers on ultrasound that have shown us it is a slam dunk test for this disease. I, and I do worry about the time. I think we have many people have this issue with a lot of bedside ultrasound is, is the time invested, is the close you know, connection with the patient for as long as this is going to take worth it to get the information you want. And that's where I think the question still lies. Absolutely. So let's move on to the last paper that uh, we planned to cover today from this month's issue. And it looks at traumatic brain injury. So some very experienced colleagues led by Karl Marcinovich had a look at validating two decision rules. So the, first of all, is the Hull-Salford-Cambridge decision rule. And then secondly, there's a decision rule called BIG, Brain Injury Guidelines decision rule. And these two decision rules are, are there to help us identify patients who have some perhaps minor abnormalities on their CT brain scan after a head injury. Our decision is whether we need to admit them for further observation. If you work in an emergency department like me, you'll know that we admit lots of patients uh, to hospital for neurological observation because they have a contusion or a skull fracture or a very small bleed. These decision rules try to identify the patients from that group who are very unlikely to progress to needing neurosurgical intervention or to have any other form of deterioration. So the authors ran a secondary analysis from the Center TBI study which was a big multi-center study that included over a thousand patients who met the inclusion criteria and 26% of them actually deteriorated. They had a look at the performance of the two rules. So the Hull-Salford-Cambridge decision rule had 100% sensitivity. That means everyone who deteriorated was accurately picked up by the decision rule. That's fantastic. We don't miss any deteriorations whatsoever. 
However, the less fantastic aspect of the results is that the specificity was only 4.7%. In fact, this decision rule could only have allowed us to discharge 3.5% of patients. So, you know, while you wouldn't miss anyone, it only allows us to send around about one in 30 patients home with these abnormalities on CT scan. Now, that was a bit more favorable than the big decision rule, which had a slightly higher specificity of 13.3%, but the sensitivity was 94.6%. The authors felt that's probably too low, given that the stakes are so high with traumatic brain injury, to allow us to discharge the patients. So really interesting study, really important question. Uh, Unfortunately, while the Hull-Selford-Cambridge decision rule looks very sensitive, it might only have a limited impact on our practice. What did you both think of this one, Sarah? Yeah, I was very hopeful when I started reading it and I was like, oh, that's that's a shame because, you know, we do see a lot of these patients and I think there's so much more potential and, and I hope that this group carry on looking at this because I think it's a really important topic and we know, I think we've previously discussed, you know, the impact of, you know, brain injury is is significant and even mild brain injury is significant. So we need to try and, and get this as good as we can, really. Um, I don't know if Ellen's got any thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I think uh, this was, a, you know, a, in some ways a very good result in that we could say if we followed this, we wouldn't send anyone home who was going to deteriorate. And of course, one of the problems with most decisions rules is that they are meant to be, in a good way, they are meant to be, you know, don't, we're not going to miss anybody, but they do tend to be over-encompassing in terms of the people that we tend to keep when we don't need to. I just wonder, and I'm going to throw this one back to Rick, whether there's going to be a role here for a combined decision rule with biomarkers. Well, that's a great question because we also published a paper looking at some biomarkers of TBI in this issue of the EMJ. There's so much interest in brain biomarkers, S100B, GFAP. And in this issue, we have a paper which looks at several of the biomarkers. Really interestingly, heart type fatty acid binding protein or HFAB is one of them. And that's a marker that I was very interested in for acute coronary syndromes. And it's now of interest for traumatic brain injury. I think the jury's still out for the biomarkers uh, of traumatic brain injury, but there's so much interest, we'll have to wait and see what the literature shows uh, as more is published. So I think that takes us to the end of the papers that we uh, wanted to cover from this month. I'd like to say thanks very much to Sarah and to Ellen for joining us today. It's been uh, fantastic to cover these uh, terrific papers. Ellen, any last words from yourself as editor-in-chief? Uh, Rick, I just want to thank you and uh, Sarah for really looking at these articles carefully and raising all these really important points, because even though we publish these, we know that no study is perfect. And I think uh, having a discussion about them really helps for, for readers to understand, you know, that there are limitations to all of the work that comes out and that they just need to apply it carefully. So I'm just going to bring it to a close there. Thank you very much again to Ellen and Rick, of course. And we look forward uh, to April 2022 and what that may bring for the Emergency Medicine Journal. So thank you very much and see you next month. Take care. Bye-bye.